Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This is for Friday, May 18th, 2018. So this would be Season 2, Episode number 18. My goodness, that is a lot of 18s. Episode 18, May 18th. 2018. I'm going to call this the 18s or wild edition of the Bobcast. Actually, truth be told, we should uh, call this the early bird edition of the Bobcast. Because even though I said it's Friday, May 18th, the reality is this is being taped on Thursday the 17th. And since it's already good to go, it's going to come out a day earlier than usual. So it's the early bird edition. So let's get busy. Lots to talk about um, now that we're midway through the third round of the playoffs. We're less than a week from being down to the only two teams playing for the Stanley Cup. Things are going to start heating up here with the other 29 teams, so let's focus on that. I do believe it's going to be very, very active. I think there are lots of big stories out there percolating, so let's get to some of those. Now, a bit of a format change um, here, at least to kick things off on, on this edition of the Bobcast. I'm asking the questions. Well, kind of. Anyways, the first question comes from Bobby Tonawanda. Hey, Bob, what's up with the Buffalo Sabres? What moves might they make? Well, Bobby Tonawanda, that is a good question. Uh, there's no question in my mind the Sabres are open for business. And, and my sense is that after the exit interviews were done with the Sabres, I think they realized they really need to make some changes to their core. And, you know, I hate to use the word culture change because I think it's such an overused cliche, but I do believe it applies in this instance that, that there does need to be a culture change in Buffalo. Um, so I think they're all ears on just about anybody not named Jack Eichel or Rasmus Dahlin. Uh, and I and I suppose that's a little bit hyperbole. I mean, it always is when you say they're listening on everybody. I mean, it's, it's not a fire sale. I mean, but I, I think if they do get a call on just about anybody there other than Eichel or... Um, or obviously the the first overall pick and what will become Rasmus Dahlin, they are going to listen. And in, and in my view, the player that is most likely to be to be moved is veteran center Ryan O'Reilly. Now, in some ways, mentioning him first after mentioning culture change, that's probably not fair to him because it, it sort of implies that he's at the root of everything that's wrong with the Buffalo Sabres and the Sabres culture of losing. And, and that's not entirely true. In fact, it may not be true at all. But he, he's a core guy. And if you're going to affect a culture change, you need to move core guys. It, it's as simple as that. And, and O'Reilly did garner some negative attention or actually some pats on the back, too, for Marks for Honesty at the end of the season when he came out of his exit interview and basically said, yeah, I did get kind of consumed by the losing. Um, I, I started to go down a negative road with my attitude. Um, but uh, I think he deserved high marks for those honesty. But in any case, I think the more practical reason why the Buffalo Sabres are, are right now intent on trading Ryan O'Reilly is that the Sabres are trying to surround Eichel and Darlene 
with, I think, younger players, younger than 27 anyways, which is O'Reilly's age. And, and I think a player of O'Reilly's stature, um, you know, he's a top two line center in the National Hockey League, bonafide. Um, and when you look at his productivity, he's, um, he's really uh, a guy that puts up some numbers every year, 20 goals, 50, 60 points. He should be the type of guy that will fetch multiple pieces. And for what the Sabres are trying to do in terms of surrounding uh, O'Reilly, uh, sorry, uh, surrounding um, Eichel and Dahlin with players of, of similar age, um, this might be a good way to do it. So I guess the next question is, who's interested in Ryan O'Reilly? And the answer to that would be multiple teams. Everybody needs a center. But two that I would note in particular, so far anyways, would be the Carolina Hurricanes and, and the Montreal Canadiens. Now, Carolina is looking to shake things up. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think we'll have more on them later. In fact, I, I think there might even be a question coming from Bobby BBQ in Raleigh-Durham. Um, as for the Canadians, I mean, their need for a center is notable. And, and even before O'Reilly became, quote-unquote, available, I know Ray Ferraro um, was doing a podcast earlier and, and mentioned what a, a natural fit O'Reilly would be on the Montreal Canadiens because they they so desperately need help at the center ice position. So what might the Sabres expect to get or ask to get on Ryan O'Reilly? Well, I, I understand the teams interested in him are being told it would have to be a, a very similar to the Mike Richards from Philadelphia to Los Angeles style deal that was circa, what, 2012. So it was six years ago. I, Philadelphia, they, to that year, they traded both Jeff Carter and Mike Richards, Carter to Columbus, and Mike Richards to the Kings. Now, when Richards was traded back in 2012 to L.A., he was 26 years old at the time. And the return for Richards from L.A. to Philly was a 22-year-old Wayne Simmons, a 19-year-old Braden Shen, and keep in mind, Braden Shen was a fifth overall pick in his draft year, um, plus, in addition to Simmons and Shen, a second-round pick in that year's draft. So I, I think the Sabres are kind of angling for that um, uh, one really solid young player, um, one you know top-notch um, prospect, uh, soon to be an NHL player, and a pretty significant pick, albeit not necessarily a, a first rounder. So that's that's the going price, it would seem. Now, there could be complications on on trading for a guy like O'Reilly, positive and negative, as it applies to the likelihood of, of O'Reilly being dealt by the by the Sabers by the draft. Um, on, on the negative side, I would say there's O'Reilly's contract. Now, he's on year two currently just finished year two um actually no i think he only finished year one let me double check that one second here let's go to the uh cap friendly as we do research in motion here just a second give it that nice live feel as we like to say okay oh come on man people are waiting um there it is o'reilly cap friendly uh yes the 2017-18 season was the second year of a seven-year deal that has an average annual value or cap hit of $7.5 million. But it's not so much the $7.5 million or even the term of the deal that gets a little complicating for things. It's the structure. It's a heavily front-ended loaded deal, and it's almost all in signing bonuses. 
Um, so O'Reilly next season is scheduled to make $8.5 million. Even though he's a $7.5 million cap hit, he's actually going to receive from his NHL team next season $8.5 million. Um, but $7.5 million of it is due as a signing bonus on July 1st. And I would say, trust me on this one, I don't think the Carolina Hurricanes are uh, too eager um, to jump in into a deal where they have to shell out $7.5 million to Ryan O'Reilly on July 1st. But uh, that would appear to be the price of poker, as, as they like to say. And, and, and the rest of the structure of the deal, I mean, the year after that, in each of the four remaining years of his deal, O'Reilly gets a $5 million signing bonus on July 1 of each year and he only gets a million dollars in salary. So what it is, too, it's, it looks to me like it's a, uh, one of those buyout-proof contracts. So there, there is that to consider. Uh, I think the other complication on the O'Reilly trade front is John Tavares and the lack of clarity with his immediate future. Now, Montreal Canadiens, for example, we've talked at length about them being a team that would be all-in on John Tavares, and I don't think there's any doubt about that, that they would have interest in JT. So could that hold up O'Reilly trade talks between Montreal and Buffalo? Um, I suppose it could. And then I, th- I think many of the teams that are interested in centers um, would first want to know, are they maybe have a shot at Tavares? Um, should he become available? And um, that whole issue may not even get resolved until closer to the draft or maybe even July 1st. So what I would suspect is that maybe the Sabres would have two prices out there for Ryan O'Reilly, maybe a pre-Tavares, a post-Tavares, or an early bird special. Um, I mean, Ryan O'Reilly could be worth more to the Sabres once Tavares is signed somewhere, be it the Islanders or anywhere else, and all those teams that had hoped to get Tavares but lost out on him, well, they're still going to be looking for a center. So maybe in Buffalo there might be an early bird special at Chef's in Buffalo on uh, Ryan O'Reilly. Anyways, it is a percolating situation, and I think one that we we really need to um, to, to keep an eye on. I'll also be interested to see if uh, the Sabers are going to get a lot of calls on Sam Reinhart and Rasmus Ristolainen. Now these guys aren't as old as O'Reilly, and they are younger, quote unquote, core pieces. Uh, and if you want to affect culture change, trading one of those guys might af- accomplish the same thing. Um, but I don't really have a sense yet on on how eager the Sabres would be to move one or both of those guys. And uh, I'd be curious to see what happens when somebody calls up and says we're interested. And, and as I said, I think the Sabres are all ears. I think they're going to listen. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily ready to push these guys out the door either. Um, for what it's worth, I know there was some speculative talk in the last few days that maybe the Edmonton Oilers were interested in Ristolainen. Um, I'm not saying there will be or there won't be, but as near as I can tell, based on the information I've got, I don't believe there have been any talks um, in that regard. Our next question comes from Bobby BBQ in Raleigh-Durham. Oh, great BBQ, barbecue in uh, Raleigh-Durham. And Bobby BBQ says, what might the Carolina Hurricanes do in the coming weeks leading up to the draft? Well, Bobby BBQ Change is most certainly the operative word in in Carolina. I don't think there's any question about that. And I mean, we've talked about it before. Everybody's been talking about it. Owner Tom Dundon is something of what I guess we could call a wild card. He's not a conventional NHL owner. Um, So I think 
one of the things we have to be careful with 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 Carolina, and we saw this in the in the hunt for uh, the GM, is is what appears to be the case one day isn't necessarily the case the next day. So it can be a a moving target. Um, and and yet all that said, I think Tom Dundon now has assembled a group in place that he's turned the keys over to, kind of, because he's the guy with the keys at all times. But Donnie Waddell is the general manager. Rick Dudley's a VP. Paul Kropelk is in there on doing contracts and, and uh, also a, a, a VP. And you've got your new head coach and Rod Brindamore. So I think the Canes, very much like Buffalo, uh, consider themselves open for business. And, and I think the word on the street, and I mentioned this earlier in the week, is that Pretty much everybody but Sebastian Ajo is available. And and again, I I put in the proviso, I mean, you do the old, everybody's available except for Ajo. Well, that's true, except I honestly don't think that Jordan Stahl's going anywhere. I'd be really surprised if Tevu Teravainen is moved or Martin Nikash. Um, really, really surprised if, if there was even conversations on those guys. But I think for argument's sake... The Canes have hung the "we're open for business" sign out there, and and they're gonna they're gonna talk on everybody. Now, I don't think the same can be said for Jeff Skinner. I think there's a real good chance that Jeff Skinner's time is up in Carolina. Um, the feeling is he will almost certainly be traded, and I think there's there's interest in him, but I also don't think there's necessarily going to be a huge return involved there. A um, couple of things. Skinner has a full no-move clause, so let's make it clear on this. He drives the bus on when or where he goes. And he's also just one year away from unrestricted free agency, and he's got one year left on his deal with a cap hit of $5.725 million. Now, I believe the LA Kings are amongst a number of teams that have inquired on Skinner, and um, he's sort of a renaissance man in that, uh, you know, two seasons ago he had the big 37-goal season. Uh, he was in the high 20s again this year. So he's reestablished himself after some lean years and some injury-induced years where he had concussions uh, and problems with injuries um, to be a, a pretty reliable offensive um, goal scorer. But um, all of that said... I don't see a future, any long-term future for him in Carolina. And I think the Canes want to, uh, want to move him. And, uh, as I said, ultimately it's, it's in his court because he's got the no move clause and, uh, that can affect the price. And that's why I think when I, I said the return might not be absolutely huge on a player like this, there are mitigating circumstances. Um, I think Victor Rask is another forward that Carolina would listen on. Um, on defense, I'd be really, really surprised if Brett Pesci or Jacob Slavin go flying out the door because they're already locked up on longer, long-term deals. And, um, but, I, I, you know, I, I think I could definitely see uh, Carolina listening on Justin Falk or Noah Hannafin on their blue line. Hannafin's uh, due for a contract. Falk's already locked up. Um, Hannafin um, is coming out of his entry level. So I'll be curious to see how they handle that one. Um, I don't believe the Canes have been shopping Falk and, and Hannafin per se, but I don't think there's any question they want to shake things up there, and I would have to think they may be open to trading at least one of those guys. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Ryan O'Reilly is, is definitely a player of interest to Carolina, but as I mentioned before too, that interest could be muted until the $7.5 million signing bonus is paid on July one. 
But I mean, logic would dictate that if the Canes aren't going to pay 7.5 million of the 8.5 million that he's getting next year, well, then the price, the acquisition price, is going to be a lot higher. If Buffalo is going to take on that financial commitment, and and Carolina's not, then uh, if I'm Buffalo, then I want to get a lot more in the return on uh, Ryan O'Reilly. So, um, anyways, like Buffalo, keep an eye on Carolina between now and the draft. Next question up is from Bobby Bloomington. Oh, yes, Bobby Bloomington. When are the Minnesota Wild going to name their new GM? Well, Bobby, as uh, Mike Russo of The Athletic uh, so ably reported this past week, it does look like it's just down to two guys now. Um, The early favorite, Paul Fenton, the assistant general manager in Nashville, um, and New Jersey Devil assistant GM, Tom Fitzgerald. Now, Fenton's been the front runner from the get-go since Chuck Fletcher was let go because there is a strong connection between Fenton and owner Craig Leopold in Minnesota. Min- uh, Leopold, of course, used to be the owner of the Nashville Predators and is well familiar with David Poyle's group, in, including Paul Fenton. So Fenton appears to be the front runner, but um, as I said, it's now down to just him and Tommy Fitzgerald from the New Jersey Devils. And uh, obviously there's something about Fitzgerald that intrigues Leopold. So um, both of these interviews seem to be in the final stages and the uh, second interviews with the owner are taking place. Now, as for timing, I would expect a decision or an announcement as early as the beginning of next week on or around May 21st, give or take a day or two. So I think we should have some clarity on that in a number of days. Got a real hot topic question here, a good one from Bobby Montauk. Bobby Montauk writes, is Lou Lamarillo going to the New York Islanders? Well, Bobby, here's what I would say to that. I do not, repeat, do not have rock-solid confirmation at this moment. I mean, not nearly enough for me to officially report that Lou is going to the Isles. Um, All of that said, I, I continue to say this, the overwhelming sense amongst those in the NHL community is that yes, this is indeed quite possible and and maybe even quite likely and perhaps, I don't know, sooner rather than later. Now, my old saying is that until a deal is all done, it's not a done deal at all. And, And I would certainly say that here only to protect myself. So opinion only, underline the opinion only. I think Lou's going to end up running the Islanders hockey ops. I do. And I, and I know people are all hung up. Well, well, what about Garth Snow? And and do not sweat the titles. Do not sweat things like that. If Lou is going to end up with the Islanders, he'll be the boss. Simple as that. Um, Lou doesn't go anywhere where he's ultimately not the boss. And, and I think that would be the case if he ends up with the Islanders. So let's wait and see if it comes to pass like we all think it will or whether for whatever reason it doesn't happen. But um, there is actually a follow-up question. Of course there is from Bobby Montauk and you had to know this was coming next. What about John Tavares? And the flu ends up with the Isles. Does that influence Tavares? Well, Bobby Montauk is full of good questions today. I, I can tell you this. It has been deathly quiet on the John Tavares front as far as his intentions to return or not to return to the New York Islanders. Now, my best guess, and I stress again, underline it's only a guess, is that I don't think we're likely to hear anything from JT um, in the days ahead. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised um, if we get to June. Um, Obviously, well before the the draft, what's the draft, June 22nd, I I think by early June we'll have some clarity, um, if not sooner, but 
early June, we should have some clarity on Tavares and whether he intends to go to market or whether he would actually entertain the notion of signing on the dotted line with the uh, with the Islanders. And um, I'll say I've said it before and I'll say it again now. My feeling, and it's just a feeling, is that JT is more likely to go to free agency than he is to re-sign with the Isles. But um, I don't think any doors or commitments, any doors have been closed or commitments have been made one way or the other. Now, as for the potential Lou factor, if he were to join the New York Islanders, I mean, it can't hurt. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, John Tavares is a pretty smart guy. Uh, I think he's going to listen to any pitch the Isles make, no matter who's making the pitch. But if the pitch is coming from Lou Lamarillo and Lou's got a specific plan as to how he's going to make the Islanders much better in both the short term and long term and give John Tavares a short term or long term um, increase his, his, his chances or interests to win the cup or to contend for the cup, well, then I think he'd be a fool not to listen. Now, um, I think that's ultimately what's what's going on here. John Tavares is going to get paid, and I don't know whether he's going to get paid 12 or $13 million or whether he might say, yeah, you know what, for the right place, I'll do it for 9 or 9.5 or 10 or 10.5 um, and, and not take a quote-unquote hometown discount um, because I think if he stays on the island, it'll probably be for a larger sum of money. Um, but, you know, what gives John Tavares the best chance to win or contend for a cup in the next one, two, three, four, five years. That, that to me, I think, from the outside looking in, that's the critical issue. Now, I'm not going to waste a lot of my time or your time going into a lot of detail on, on hypotheticals, on what places might afford John Tavares that opportunity, because I, I do believe for now it is premature. He hasn't said he's leaving. But um, I, I would say this. If I were John Tavares, just me talking, um, I wouldn't limit myself to the teams that want me. And and we've mentioned those teams all season long. The teams we believe that would really want to be in on John Tavares, the Montreal Canadiens, the St. Louis Blues, the San Jose Sharks, amongst so many others. If I were John Tavares, I'd be looking at, at the whole league and looking at the contenders who are ready to win. And even at face value, they might not make sense because of their financial situation or their depth at center already or whatever it might be. Um, if, if I were him, I'd, I'd keep a completely open mind and I'd basically say, I don't know, could, could the Nashville Predators, uh, would they be interested in me? Would the Boston Bruins have interest or Tampa Bay or Toronto or, or Washington or Winnipeg or all these teams that are either contending for the Cup on the cusp of winning the cup. So as I say, we're, we're just spitballing here until JT makes a declaration as to what he's doing or when he's doing it. Um, but uh, I, I think things are going to get interesting here with, uh, with Tavares, obviously, in the, the next couple of weeks. And uh, maybe we will get some, some clarity. And until then, we're spitballing on him and spitballing on Lou. And I mean, that's what we do. Well, I seem to have run out of questions from people named Bobby, which is probably good news for you guys. Um, so we might get some legitimate questions going here. Um, 
First one comes from Carter McNeely. Hey, Bob, what do you see John Carlson getting in free agency this summer? I don't watch him very often, but at a glance, his stats look like he's having a career year. He's always been very effective at both ends of the ice. And given the money that Kevin Shattenkirk got last summer, an inferior player in my opinion, could, he end up, could Carlson end up getting $7 million a year or more? With all the contracts the Caps handed out last summer, I'm assuming they can't afford to keep him, or is that still... A possibility uh, worth noting is that Carter's letter on John Carlson came in on January 18th 2018 so it was a while ago but everything's still very much applicable here other than the fact we can report that uh, obviously the Caps are two wins away from going to the Stanley Cup final um, going into tonight's uh, game four up to one on the uh, on the bolts so um we'll see what happens with carlson ovechkin in the gang but uh, carlson's been very good in the playoffs just as he was and yes it is a career year um could he end up with the capitals um i know he'd like to uh, he loves it in washington loves the team loves everything about living and playing there um i can't imagine the caps could do it without moving some pieces around but uh not entirely out of the question, um, but work would be required to do. And and part of the reason work would be required to do is because he's having a career year, I mean, the meter's been running all season on what this guy's going to get. So in answer to Carter's question, if he were going to stay in Washington, I'm going to say he's going to want an eight-year deal at more than $7 million a year, somewhere between seven and $8 million a year. So as I said, can the Caps accommodate that? I'm not sure they can, but um, he's going to want the same sort of um, uh, considerations that uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov got with his long-term deal, and uh, because he is on the verge of, of going to free agency. Kuznetsov wasn't on the verge of going to free agency, but he did have, obviously, the KHL option awaiting him if he wanted to uh, play that card. Now, if um, Carlson does go to free agency, um, I do believe he would be the marquee free agent on the blue line. And as such, he couldn't get an eight-year deal because only the Caps could get him that unless there's a sign-and-trade done. Um, but I could see... Um, um, perhaps uh, a seven-year deal between seven and eight million dollars a year. One of the things that I find really interesting about trying to predict how much Carlson's going to get as a potential free agent or even re-signing in Washington is that I really think the defenseman market is going to be in a state of the financial market for defensemen is going to be in a state of, of flux this summer. We've talked about it all season long. Uh, Drew Doughty, Eric Carlson and Oliver Ekman Larson, three elite defensemen, are all a year away from unrestricted free agency. But what that means is they can do contract extensions this summer. And in fact, Craig Morgan in Arizona uh, just reported the other day, yesterday, I believe, that uh, the Arizona Coyotes and Oliver Ekman Larson are in conversation about an eight year deal believed to be worth. A shade more than eight million dollars per year. Now, I think it's worth pointing out, as I understand it, um, this is not a done deal. And, and I should point out, from the formal technical part of the CBA, 
no deal could be signed until July 1st. No extension for Ekman Larson can be signed with Arizona until July 1st. I don't believe there's anything that would prevent them from agreeing to terms before then, but I don't believe that Craig's report suggested they've agreed to terms. And my understanding is they haven't agreed to terms, but that there is the the framework or the parameters of an offer or a deal on the table. Whether Oliver Ekman Larson chooses to take that or not remains to be seen. Um, it's quite possible that he will. But I think uh, I've also been led to believe that we shouldn't assume anything uh, at this point in time. So um, I think all, all options remain open there. But we, we're not going to go down the, the Drew Doughty rabbit hole just now or the Eric Carlson rabbit hole, which is even more complicated because of his situation in, in Ottawa. But I would say this, that the the market for high-end defensemen could substantially change this summer, depending on what Doughty gets from the Kings on an extension or an offer. Same thing with Carlson and whether or not he's he's signed or traded in this offseason. And so I think from from John Carlson's perspective, um, what happens with those guys might or could um, impact or influence what uh, what what he thinks he should take or what he thinks he's worth. I think that ripple effect goes right on down the line with defensemen. Um, Ryan Ellis in Nashville. I mean, no sooner had the Nashville Predators been knocked out of the Stanley Cup playoffs by the Winnipeg Jets than there were stories in the Tennessean talking about how eager uh, uh, Nashville will be to get an extension done with Ryan Ellis. Ryan Ellis, like uh, Drew Doughty, Eric Carlson, and Oliver Ekman Larson, only has a year left on his deal with the Nashville Predators until he's an unrestricted free agent. And he is one of the biggest bargains in the National Hockey League. He's uh, he's a $2.5 million cap hit. $2.5 million for what Ryan Ellis brings to the Nashville Predators. And it's great that they're going to be only paying him that for one more year. But this guy's in line for a big big raise and and what happens with Doughty and Carlson and Ekman Larson and John Carlson could absolutely impact um, Ryan Ellis now you know he he obviously loves it in Nashville and if you're going to play on a team like the Nashville Predators there's obviously you know hometown discounts involved although if you're Ryan Ellis you might suggest hey man I've been doing the deep, deep hometown discount at 2.5 million because in his own way, I think in a variety of ways, Ryan Ellis is every bit as valuable to the Nashville Predators as Roman Yossi, Matthias Ekholm, um, PK Subban, um, and to have done it at such a bargain basement rate for as many years as he has is is really quite something. So I don't know what the market will be for an extension for um, for Ryan Ellis, but I suspect David Poyle will find out this summer um, because they are going to want to try to keep him in the fold. But I, I got to believe at the base minimum, we're looking at between 6 and $7 million a year. I mean, if he were on the open market and he's not on the open market until a year this July, you know, what would a team like the Edmonton Oilers or somebody that could use a 27-year-old or a, in a year from now a 28-year-old right-shot defenseman who brings to the table what Ryan Ellis brings to the table? Um, so uh, I think that's that's fascinating. And as I said, whether it's uh, John Carlson, Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty, Oliver Ekman Larson, Ryan Ellis, it is going to be a really interesting summer on that whole value of the defenseman front.
Got a couple of good uh, questions on the coaching front. Um, first one from Nick in New York. Hi, Bob. I love your Bobcast, which I listen to religiously. So my question is, Jeff Gorton seems to be keeping the New York Ranger coaching search rather confidential. With Jim Montgomery being hired by the Dallas Stars this week and Bill Peters being hired by the Flames last week, who are some of the candidates that you believe Gorton is looking at to be the next Rangers head coach? Any ideas? Is it someone whose team may still be in the NHL or AHL playoffs or someone currently not working or in the college ranks? Thanks in advance for considering my question and keep up the great work. That from Nick in New York. And that was sent in obviously May 2nd with reference to those, uh, those time stamps on uh, Montgomery being hired by the Stars and Peters hired by the Flames. Uh, the other question comes from Ben Paul in Kelowna, who said, I'd like to get your take on why there seems to be so many high-caliber hockey coaches available and out of work these days. Cheers. Talk to you soon, Ben from Kelowna. Let's start with Nick from New York's question on the Rangers. Um, it has been fairly quiet on the Ranger coaching front. I believe Jeff Gorton, the general manager of the Rangers, had been spending some time in Copenhagen um, in Denmark at the World Championships. Um, here are my thoughts on, on, on the Rangers situation. Um, I believe their guy was um, Jim Montgomery, um, that that was who they wanted to be their head coach. And I don't know whether a contract was ever offered or not. And maybe Montgomery had a choice between the Rangers uh, and the Dallas Stars. But in any case, for whatever reason, uh, Montgomery is the head coach in Dallas. He's not in New York. And I think at this point, um, I don't get the strong sense that there's an obvious choice or front runner or that there's any great sense of urgency for the Rangers to hire somebody and that I think they're doing their due diligence and they're looking at all levels of hockey. Now we've heard David Quinn's name a lot. David Quinn, of course, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, is the head coach of uh, Boston university. Um, and obviously a nice resume in college hockey, uh, like Montgomery. Um, and every couple of days, it seems there's a report that, David Quinn has told BU he's coming back. He's not going pro. And then his name pops back up again as a candidate. So quite frankly, I don't have a handle at this moment on whether David Quinn is available or not. But his name keeps popping back up, uh, percolating around um, as a potential candidate for the New York Rangers. Um, but I don't necessarily get the sense that he's this obvious choice front runner um, who's who's about to get an offer. Could be wrong on that, but that's my, my take on it. Um, there's been a lot of talk, oh, the, the reason it's so quiet is because the New York Rangers really, really, really want to talk to Sheldon Keefe, who's the coach of the Toronto Marlies of the American Hockey League and under contract, of course, to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and they're still playing um, in the final four of the, the Calder Cup playoffs. And, um, and, and while I don't rule out the possibility that Keith might be somebody that the Rangers would want to talk to or would be interested in interviewing, I, I, I likewise don't get any strong sentiment that that's the reason why nothing's happening here is because they're waiting for, for the Toronto Marlies to get knocked out. So that's, um, kind of my take on it. And, and if you're a Ranger fan and you're saying, well, it doesn't sound like there's a, an obvious choice here. I, if there is, I'm not getting that sense at all. 
and and I think they're going through a, a process here, and they don't seem to be overly concerned that this is something that needs to happen in the next number of days or weeks, and that this could drift a lot closer to the draft than right now. Um, I think, you know, anything and everybody's a possibility. And the longer you wait, obviously, some candidates get taken off the board. But quite frankly, there aren't a lot of coaching searches going on right now. So I don't know how how much of a factor that's going to be. And to be honest, the longer you wait, you know, who knows what Barry Trott's future is with the Washington Capitals. We all saw the reports in the last number of weeks where he was uh, congratulating, uh, he was getting congratulations from John Tortorella following Washington's win over Columbus. And the lip readers were suggesting that Trotz was telling, um, telling Torts that I'm done, I'm done at the end of this season. And that, you know, he may be either uh, uh, unemployed or the best free agent available. Um, Take your pick. But in any case, um, there's, uh, it gets us to the other question from Ben in Kelowna, who's talking about, you know, all the the guys that don't have jobs right now. Um, Dave Tippett, Daryl Sutter, Paul McLean, Danny Bilesma. Uh, saw Bob Hartley coaching Latvia at the World Championships. I'm sure he'd like to get back. Um, Ralph Kruger is a name that, that percolates and circulates now and again. And, of course, Kruger is involved with Southampton Football Club um, in the uh, premiership. But uh, a lot of people believe he's he could be a top candidate for anybody that's looking for a, um, uh, a high-quality head coach. And a lot of people think he kind of got a raw deal when he got fired by the Edmonton Oilers. And uh, I hear a lot of NHL people speak very favorably of, of Ralph Kruger. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that Kruger is necessarily a candidate with the Rangers. I'm just saying, uh, in addition to all these prominent names like Tippett, Sutter, McLean, Bilesma, Hartley amongst others, uh, Glenn Gullitson who just got let go by the uh, the Calgary Flames. Then you've got your David Quinns and, and guys like Nate Lehman and the top college coaches that have some pretty good resumes. And now there's a lot of guys in the American Hockey League. Sheldon Keefe, Pascal Vincent, who was AHL Coach of the Year for Winnipeg's farm team. Um, you've got uh, NHL assistants, Jeff Ward. Um, you've got other, uh, Tim Hunter, um, who's been coaching in the Western Hockey League, but has been padding his coaching resume. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him resurface in the NHL fairly soon as an, a, as an assistant or maybe an American League head coach. Um, you've got American League head coaches like Rocky Thompson and Todd Nelson and Mike Vellucci and and uh, others. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a ton. I, I didn't make a comprehensive list here, just doing this off the top of my head. But those are all the types of candidates that are floating around out there and um, how it pertains to the Rangers. We'll have to wait and see on that front. Um, But uh, as for the, the big name guys, there does seem to be a little bit of a sense right now with Montgomery getting the Dallas job and David Quinn's name being featured so prominently and guys like Keith and Rocky Thompson and, and others that, that maybe the first time NHL head coach is a little more the flavor of the day than the recycled veteran guy like a Tippett or a Sutter or a McLean or a Bilesma or the list goes on and on. So anyways, that's uh, sort of the coaching landscape as it sits right now. The next question is draft related, um, both NHL and junior related. 
comes from Trent Letty. Hey, Bob, I have a question about Adam Mascarin and his situation. Why has he not received a contract yet from the Florida Panthers? And what happens if he doesn't get one? All the best from Trent. Well, that's a great question. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should point out that Adam Mascarin plays for the Kitchener Rangers of the Ontario Hockey League. And as you may or may not know, my son, Mike McKenzie, is the GM, general manager of the said Rangers here. But um, that doesn't really mean anything other than I've seen Adam play a lot. And uh, the question that Trent is asking is, is fairly basic in terms of the parameters. So first, let's let's give you some quick background to bring everyone up to speed on this one in case you're not familiar with it. Masterin was Florida's second round pick in 2016. He went 38th overall. Now, the year they drafted him, he was coming off a 35-goal, 81-point season um, with the, uh, the Rangers. Now, in the last two seasons, Masterin has scored 36 goals and 40 goals and had 100 points in one of the seasons and 86 points this past season. I, I think it's fair to say he's an elite junior hockey scorer. Um, he's got an NHL shot and an NHL release. And um, I would say that um, he's projected as a prospect who, if he's going to play in the National Hockey League, and as I said, he's got an NHL shot, um, that he would probably require some time in the American Hockey League to adjust to the pro game and learn how to play without the puck at the next level. Um, That's sort of the scouting report on him. Now, Trent asks, why has he not received a contract yet from the Panthers, and what happens if he doesn't get one? So it's a two-part question. On the first part, I can tell you this. Um, He did receive a contract offer from Florida, and a pretty good one too. According to the the Panthers, uh, it's believed they offered him the same entry-level contract as Alex Dabrinkit got in Chicago. Now it's worth noting that Dabrinkit, who was really good in the America, uh, sorry, in the NHL this year, one of the top scoring, top scoring, top goal scoring rookies in the NHL this year, um, he was taken immediately uh, by he was taken by Chicago, um, one spot after Maskerin went to Florida in their draft year. Now, um, Maskerin turned down that contract offer from the Panthers. And the, the general feeling from Maskerin's camp was he wasn't really feeling the love from Florida, that the relationship, or maybe it's the lack of relationship since he was drafted by the Panthers, was such that he just didn't feel comfortable signing there. Now, as for part two of Trent's question, for the rules, if Maskerin is not signed by the Panthers by June 1st or by the end of this month, he will re-enter the draft. And it's actually quite a fascinating situation. Um, Also worth noting, Masterin switched agents midway through this season. He left Newport Sports and he went with Uptown Sports. And um, I think it would be fair to speculate that Uptown Sports, who now represent Adam Mascarin, that the the offer Florida made was a, a pretty fair offer, a lucrative offer. But the player apparently has been adamant about not signing with the Panthers and, if necessary, taking his chances with the reentry draft. Um, now, there are some who think that in this situation, um, the kid could be overplaying his hand, that he's not likely to get a better offer from anybody else and that he could be drafted later than the second round. Um, but... Uh, the kid's apparently fully committed to taking his chances and living with whatever the potential fallout is. And I guess, you know, basically betting on himself. Um, it's worth noting, of course, and I'm sure this isn't anything that he hasn't already been told by his representatives. 
re-entering the draft can be a really dangerous game. Uh, in 19, in, sorry, in 2002, uh, Tim Brent was a real good player for the St. Michael's Majors. He got drafted by Anaheim, 37th overall. Um, could not come to terms with the Anaheim Ducks on a contract and re-entered the draft. Now, as fate would have it, uh, at that time, Tim Brent was represented by Uptown, uh, the same representatives, uh, the same agency that looks after um, Adam now. Um, and uh, of, and what happened on the re-entry wasn't very pretty. Um, I mentioned that Tim Brent went 37th overall to Anaheim in 2002. Well, he went 75th overall to Anaheim in 2004. And that's the very real possibility that a re-entry faces. That re-entries traditionally don't get drafted as high the second time as they did the first time. And there's always the chance that the team that drafted you the first time will use a later pick to draft you the second time. And that's exactly what Anaheim did with Timmy Brent. And when whatever Tim Brent turned down from Anaheim as the 37th overall pick in 2002, the deal that he was basically forced to take as the 75th overall pick in 2004 was not nearly as lucrative. It cost him a significant amount of money. And that is the danger that you run. Um, similar thing happened to goaltender Matthew Schwenard. He went 15th overall to the Ottawa Senators in the 1998 entry draft. Wasn't able to come to terms with Ottawa. And guess what? He went 45th overall in the 2000 draft again to the Ottawa Senators. And obviously, the difference here is when you're drafted as an 18-year-old, you got your two years to sign or go back into the draft. When you get redrafted as a 20-year-old, you're basically done in junior hockey unless you want to come back to uh, um, to the OHL or the WHL or the QMJHL as an overage. And you basically are ready to start your professional career. So you're kind of at the mercy of the team and you don't have a lot of leverage. Um, and uh, that's why quite often re-entry deals aren't nearly as good as the deals that they were offered. But... I think it's fair to say in this particular instance that Adam Maskerin is apparently going into this eyes wide open, betting on himself. Uh, we should point out, of course, the other option here is that Florida could trade the pick before the end of the month, before the re-entry deadline, and maybe there's a team that would be interested in that. I do know Florida was asking around weeks, if not a month ago, um, and trying to move Maskerin. Um, and um, well, I think they were asking for a third-round pick. There were no takers at that point. So whether they're prepared to trade them for a lesser pick to somebody else and, and, and afford another team the opportunity to try and sign the kid um, remains to be seen, or whether they just say the hell with it, let him re-enter the draft, let him take his chances, and uh, see where he ends up uh, being selected in the draft. And I don't know whether Florida has any interest in um, in redrafting him in a round later than number two, round number two. I don't believe the Panthers were overly excited at the fact that the kid turned down their offer. But in any case, we'll see what happens at the end of this month. And uh, if he does go as a re-entry, it'll be fascinating to see uh, come June 22nd in Dallas um, where and when he goes. Let's uh, wrap things up this week with a little listener feedback. This one coming from Mark Kozabak. Uh Bob, I have never been a wine guy, but after listening to your show and seeing that we share a lot of things in common, 
hockey, TV shows, blah, blah, blah. Thought I would give the old grapes another try. Well, let me tell you that you know what is up. Wine is the bomb. I can't believe that I'd be missing out after all these years. I tried your recommendation on JLOR and it did not disappoint. Just wondering what other wines are your new faves and any new discoveries that you may have had. If you're ever in Phoenix, hit me up. I would love for you and the missus to visit my restaurant for dinner. On me, of course, I do have to let you know the wine selection is bogus, but our margaritas are the best around. Well, it doesn't get much better than that. A margarita offer, and it's not too far from Bobby Margarita time. Let me tell you that. Um, yeah, thanks very much, Mark. I'm glad to see you got turned on to the grape. It's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, the J-Lore is good. Um, I mean, you can't go wrong with that. I always tell everybody the show, the the show, California Cab, uh, is the best under $20 bottle you can buy. So that's that's a good one. And uh, listen to other Bobcasts for multiple other recommendations. And the sky's the limit when it comes to uh, where you want to go with the whole wine thing. It's fascinating. And uh, I've been into a lot more French and Italian lately than Cali Cabs. That's the uh, Sean McKenzie influence on me. But uh, great to hear from Mark Kozabak. Uh, here's a letter from uh, an email, rather, from a guy who has written this on this subject, I want to say at least four or five times this season, to suggest that Fred Bates, who penned this um, email to me, is passionate about this particular subject. I think it's finally time we uh, let Fred air the grievances, and it's an appropriate time to do it. With the, Na- with the uh, Vegas Golden Knights up 2-1 to one on the Winnipeg Jets in their conference final, Fred is not a very happy guy. And um, the subject matter of uh, his, his email to me is the, the day our game died. So here, here's from Fred. The elephant in the room is getting bigger and bigger. The Frankenstein Vegas franchise is now about to, about to consume its very creator, Gary Bettman, and his cronies. Bettman and his cronies wanted desperately for Vegas to be an instant success and grab hold of a very lucrative market immediately. They were willing and did give this new franchise unfair concessions never given to a new franchise in any professional sport to make sure it could punch a ticket to instant success in its very first year. They sold the very integrity, rich tradition, and soul of the NHL and many of its fans to the devil for a cool half billion dollars. The values of hard work, perseverance, patience, the delay of instant gratification in building a team and franchise are not values shared by Bettman and his cronies. This is nothing but pure American corporate capitalism at its ugliest and greediest. However, just knocking on the door of the Western Conference final would have been the perfect caper and scam would have been accomplished without totally making everyone angry. angry. The problem, however, is the Frankenstein franchise has morphed out of control on Bettman, and his cronies in Vegas have now made it to the Final Four in just 10 short playoff games. Uh, Sorry, and in just 10 short playoff games, and the franchise is not even a year old. They are just eight wins from the Cup. I can edit that to say they are now six wins from the Cup. I'm sure the NHL propaganda machine is now being put into overdrive. Any five-year-old will tell you that Vegas in the Final Four in its first year is neither fair nor right. However, it seems every hockey writer in this country has a positive view of this Vegas franchise and its overnight success and cannot comprehend what any five-year-old already knows is simply plain and wrong. Perhaps this is because, unlike five-year-olds, they are corrupted by what side their bread is buttered on. 
They are mouthpieces for Gary Bettman and his propaganda and wrongdoings. The really sad part about this Vegas scam is that it is really symbolic of the death of our game and its complete Americanization when an American billionaire can instantly compete for the oldest and most respected sports trophy in the world by putting up a half billion dollars. Bettman should resign and go to work for the team uh, to built the Vegas Golden Knights. There you go. That from Fred Bates. Now, I should point out that Fred sent something similar back in January 11th. He sent some, oh, sorry, January 21st, January 11th. Um, and I think I had one even before that in the fall. So, hey, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And, and Fred has his. I, I kind of get a little bit of what Fred's saying, that there are some people who believe that maybe the league went too far with the expansion rules, but I would suggest that I think the general managers overreacted to those expansion rules, did too many side deals um, to try to get too cute, especially as it related to financial-related reasons, and as such made some bad hockey deals with the Vegas Golden Knights that gave them a leg up on even maybe what Seattle will get. And I had a lot of questions, by the way, from people saying, would Vegas' success, especially if they win the Cup, um, will that negatively impact Seattle and the prospect for its expansion draft um, when they come into the league? And I don't think so. The league's already on record as saying that Seattle, who will pay more than the $500 million that uh, Vegas paid, um, will get at least the same deal um, that Vegas got. So, um, is what it is. Uh, I understand Fred being upset, but I still think it's kind of a cool story. Um, and if I should find myself in Vegas for the Stanley Cup final, I think I can enjoy it uh, for what it is. I want to wrap up the uh, listener feedback this week and, and the Bobcast with something that was discussed both in episode 16 and episode 17. And that was on uh, organ donation and um, being an organ donor. And um, it started in episode 16 because we were talking about uh, the Humboldt Broncos bus tragedy and how some good can come out of something so dark. And we specifically referenced the story of Logan Boulay, well documented now, the young man who once he turned 21 signed his Be a Donor card and, um, and, and was able to save six lives with the organs that were harvested from his body after the crash. And... Um, that was a, a, a story that uh, got a lot of traction after the fact and um, in episode 16. And that led to discussions in episode 17 of, of, of another concept of organ donation, and that is being a living donor. And uh, Chris from Canada, who does the show notes for the Bobcast, um, was within 48 hours of being a living donor, um, prepared to um, give up a large chunk of his liver uh, to his brother, who was badly in need of a liver transplant. Um, but just within the last uh, day or two before they were scheduled to do the surgery on Chris from Canada, um, they were able to get a, uh, a donation from a, a dead donor. Um, and uh, Chris's, Chris from Canada's brother got that uh, liver transplant. And, is, is, and as we've reported in episode 17, doing quite well. So a couple of um, interesting follow-ups here um, that I think are really important for us to, uh, to listen to. Uh, the first one says, Dear Bob, thank you for raising awareness for the need of organ donors in your past two shows. I guarantee your mentions have motivated people to register as life-saving organ donors. I agree with you that there's no better way in which to honor the humble tragedy than to register as a donor. 
as an organ donor. I would also like to mention the WHL, WHL's campaign in partnership with Renax this past season to also raise organ donor awareness. The WHL suits up with Don Cherry. So you can, by the way, you can check the WHL website um, for that program. Uh, this email goes on to say, being a double lung recipient on December 14th, 2017, and being a hockey mom myself, I've learned firsthand that our game is a powerful source to raise awareness to important social causes. From my own perspective, the support the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League have given our family and our son Adam has been heartwarming. In the fall of 2016, the team produced the following organ donation video. And if you'd like to see this video, by the way, you can go to YouTube, look up uh, Cape Breton Screaming Eagles, um, Adam McCormick, M small c, cap c, O-R-M-I-C-K. And what Adam basically says in the uh, in the video is my mom needs lung transplants. And if you can help, you know, here's how you can be an organ donor. And the association followed that up with a, a bilingual uh, message urging everybody to be organ donors. Now picking up um, the email again. Adam recently completed his 17-year-old season in second full year with the team. As a family, it's, it's important for us to pay it forward to honor my donor family, our local community, and our hockey community support given us by continuing to raise awareness. With that in mind, thank you once again. You have helped to save more lives. Audrey McCormick, Woodstock, New Brunswick. Audrey, obviously, is Adam's mom, and as she points out, in her correspondence, she was a double lung recipient on December 14th, uh, just before Christmas. So um, that's great to hear. And uh, again, um, by all means, check out the uh, the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles YouTube video on that. And also go to the WHL website on the organ donation uh, suits up with Don Cherry. Um, another response that touched a nerve on this subject. This one from Mark Ferry. Hi, Bob. Big fan of the podcast from out here on the West Coast in Vancouver. I'm 32 years old and a big hockey fan, and I love to follow your takes on the show and elsewhere. And sometimes having a hard time living down the fact that my most prized possession might be my signed number four Bobby Orr jersey in the anti-Boston locale in which I live. I have been going through some medical issues lately after dealing with some chronic illness throughout my life and I wondered if it might merit a very brief mention on the pod. When I saw and heard about the Humboldt Broncos tragedy, I was shocked and very saddened by the incident, but wasn't able to see the light that it shone on organ donation, especially the young 21-year-old player who was able to help several people through signing up to be an organ donor. Currently, I am facing kidney failure, and while people seem to have signed up in droves following the tragedy to donate at the end of their lives, there is also a population of people who would really benefit from living donation. You see, in order to qualify to get on the list to receive a kidney from a deceased donor, a patient needs to go on dialysis, often for upwards of three to five years. In addition to dialysis being a major lifestyle impediment, it is also not great for your health to be on it for an extended period of time, as it can cause issues with your cardiovascular system and brain, amongst other things. So for patients trying to avoid this non-ideal circumstance, a donation from a willing living donor is the only way to go in order to achieve the best long-term outcome. 
If you could mention the value of signing up to being a living kidney donor during your show, I'm sure there are many people out there who can benefit, including but certainly not limited to myself. Personally, I've set up a webpage, bemydonor.ca, with information about how someone can donate. And my goal is for after my transplant to turn the site into something other patients can use to try to find their own donors too. Thanks very much from out west. And let me know if you have any questions about my situation so you can explain adequately should you decide to talk about it. A longtime Canucks fan, Mark, um, in uh, out west. So that from Mark Ferry. And as Mark mentioned, and I repeat it, if you want to see Mark's story and what he's trying to accomplish in finding a living donor, um, bemydonor.ca is where you go for that. So Mark, to you, all the best with your search for a living donor, all your best with your battle against um, uh, uh, kidney failure, and uh, and uh, we, we, we give our, all our thoughts from the Bobcast to you and uh, and Mark obviously wasn't aware that in episode 17 that we did talk about living donation as it related to Chris from Canada and others. One more thing to note on the whole living donation thing, and this one's close to home for me because Matt Dunn is a is a features producer at TSN. Great guy, Matty Dunn does fantastic work with Josh Scheiman and his crew on a lot of the TSN originals and feature length documentaries that you see. And um, Matt's little son, uh, Charlie, um, has, was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. And uh, um, if you go to Matt's um, Twitter feed, which is at Matt Dunn, T-S-N, that's M-A-T-T-D-U-N-N-T-S-N. If you go through his timeline, you'll see an unbelievably heartwarming story about his son, Charlie, with video about how Matt's wife, Catherine, and, and Charlie's mom, she, she was the donor for, um, for Charlie's kidney transplant. And in fact, if you go to at CTV News um, or go to ctvnews.ca, um, there's actually a tremendous feature that they did on Matt's story, Charlie's story, Catherine's story, and how he came back from Sick Kids Hospital uh, on Mother's Day to be reunited with his mom. And it, it's the most heartwarming thing you could possibly imagine and, and really highlights um, the need and the importance of being a living donor, um, to Mark's point, um, and his search at bemydonor.ca. Um, and on that note, we'll um, wrap things up, but not before we, uh, we finish this off with something that is absolutely um, touching to me, and that is a tweet that I got uh, sent at me, uh, along with uh, Frank Cervelli and Darren Dreger and Ryan Rashog, um, those of us that were uh, at T, those of us from TSN that were doing a fair bit of stuff on the Humboldt tragedy. And this um, this tweet comes from Toby Boulay, who of course is the father of Logan Boulay, who got the whole ball rolling on on us on the Bobcast talking about organ donation. And Toby's tweet to us was, thank you, Frank Cervelli, Darren Dreger, Ryan Rashog, Bob McKenzie, for all of the beautiful tributes that you've given the Broncos. My son, Logan Boulay, is always going to be humbled strong. And I thank you for remembering him along with his mates. And um, 
uh, Frank Cervelli replied on Twitter to Mr. Boulay, thank you, Mr. Boulay. It was the honor of my career to be in Humboldt and to tell those stories. I know my colleagues feel the same way. All the best to you and your family. And uh, to Mr. Boulay, I would echo exactly what Frank said. It is our great honor uh, under the most unfortunate circumstances possible to uh, carry on the cause that uh, that Logan felt was near and dear to his heart in terms of being a donor. And uh, Mr. Boulay, our thoughts are with you. Our thoughts are with Logan. And uh, if you're not already an organ donor, please go out today in the memory of Logan Boulay and, and to try and help so many others um, go out and be a donor. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.